0: means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to
1: On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. The big question we address here on this podcast is how to grow great men. It's right there in our tagline. Real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. And that is why I am so excited to talk to today's guest. He has written a book that directly talks about this question. Michael C. Reichert is with us today, and he is the author of a recently released book called How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. He is also a psychologist, the founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives, and he is a dad and grandfather of boys. Michael, welcome.
2: Nice to be here with you, Jennifer and Janet, and and, and, and your listeners. I'm glad we're going to have this conversation.
1: Really excited for it. I already told Janet this, and I think I may have mentioned it to you before, Michael, as well, but I love your book. I had it sitting on my kitchen table, and my boys who are teenagers now, my 18-year-old pointed at it and said, isn't it a bit late?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I have a similar story, but it it has a different outcome. I I lead a group uh, at a boys' school outside of Philadelphia for for 16-, 17-, and 18-year-old guys that we meet about every other week. Uh, it's a very powerful group, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I would share over the course of this year up to, uh, a- April 9th, when the book's release date was that I had a book coming out. I went into the group the last time we met just after the ninth and, and boy after boy came into the room and said, I'm reading your book. I'm reading your book. I'm reading your book. <laughs> They're in wow. the book, of course, <laughs> but yeah, it was very, very powerful. Powerful for me, actually. I, I didn't expect that.
1: There is a real hunger, I think, among our boys, including our teenage boys, to be understood.
2: That's exactly what I was going to say. I, I, you know, I, I say a lot that in order to become a relational anchor for a boy, and every boy needs that, desperately needs that, uh, the boy has to feel known and loved by that person.
3: And listen to, and Jen and I talk about that a lot is that feeling of simply just listening without judgment, without our, you know, overlaying adult, you should, and if you only did this, but just to simply hold space and listen is so crucial. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that in your book in so many different ways. and. I feel, and I've, and Jen too, we've, we've talked a lot also about our kids are schooling adults on how, how they are beginning to change and shift and grow. And they don't want this um, this form of masculinity and this form of relating anymore. And it feels like that man box is starting to, to move around a little bit and shift and break open.
2: Well, I think, I think <clears throat> you know, I, I, there's a California health study that I, I cite in the book, 2015. They found that 25% of the teens that were surveyed identified themselves as gender non-conforming. And yet what I would argue is that the man box is as alive and well as robust and consequential as it's ever been. Yes. I just think it's chafing more. Boys are... are pushing more for more freedom to be themselves. And I think we parents are beginning to get that we have to do something different.
1: And yet so many of us are struggling to figure out what yeah. that is. And That's this right. this is where your book comes in, obviously. <laughs> I mean, yeah. frankly, if we were all collectively doing a great job of raising our boys, you wouldn't have had to write the book and
3: we wouldn't I have, have a market. This
1: podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. right?
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: You know,
3: Michael, I want to um, highlight one aspect of your book that you brought up, a very telling example of these polar extremes that we're talking about, of the kind of standardized masculinity, that that extreme version, you called it, of entitlement and self-centeredness and that violent male identity contrasted with these three men who you spoke about in this attack. And our listeners may or may not know that I live in Portland, Oregon. And just about two years ago, right about now, there were two women, young girls, riding on our MAX train, our public transit. And one of them was wearing a hijab. And this man came and started saying things to them and and being very aggressive. And three men on that train stepped in And I might have to have you finish this story. Um, One of them was a a retired Army veteran, father of four. One of them who I know because he grew up in the town that my kids grew up in. Wow. Um, 23-year-old college graduate, amazing, amazing young man. And another twenty-three-year-old man, and they stepped in. The man had a knife, and he was threatening these these young women. And they they stepped in, and and you highlight this the fact that they led from their hearts, and they had this this um, quality of of being courageous and selflessness. And you know, isn't that what we're hoping for all of humanity? And so it was just this crossroads of. Um, extreme masculinity uh, juxtaposed with this heart the, of, I believe, that all men have. And, you know, the outcome was not good. Two of the men died and one of them was severely injured and the the attacker, did he die? I can't remember.
2: I've you know, about, I don't know. That I outcome.
3: think he is in prison. Yeah,
2: yeah. I do too. Yeah. yeah, the
3: attacker has um, has been charged and, and is in prison. So, I, I that just really stood out to me that an example of this crossroads that we're at with masculinity that I'm sure all of our you know everyone feels.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I love hearing you tell the story uh, from your community. I'm I'm really glad to to hear your your reactions to it janet it's very moving to me to hear it you know we are one of the buzz phrases that you hear a lot whenever we talk about boys men and masculinity is this phrase toxic masculinity and folks would ascribe to that attacker an extreme uh, uh, version of toxic masculinity violent entitled um, racist Etc. And I say that absolutely there are bad behaviors that are outcomes of the boyhood that we've designed and that we manage. But I think it's a confusion. I think it's misleading to attribute the problem to masculinity itself. I actually think it directs our attention away from the problem which isn't masculinity. It is the design of boyhood that produces a whole host of routine casualties and losses, losses of virtue, losses of connection, losses of humanity. We know the top 15 causes of premature and preventable mortality are predominantly outcomes of of men, 75 percent So losses, casualties of all kinds are routine outcomes of boyhood. And what I'm optimistic about is that we're finally in a position, I think because of stories like that one and our growing intolerance, our growing unwillingness to normalize them, Mm -hmm. um, I think we're finally in a position to say what's going on that these outcomes, whether it's educational failure or health outcomes, Higher rates of risk taking and substance use, driving without seat belts, unprotected sex, whatever it might be. The various ways that boys compromise their integrity, even to the point of losing their lives and and hurting other people. What's going on? And that's really the point of my book is first to inform parents, educators and coaches, you know, what is going on? Why do we have these, these sad outcomes?
1: I think you are absolutely right that increasingly parents are hearing stories such as that. We have watched the Me Too movement happen. We have seen men that were at the top of their fields be taken down because they were accused of horrific incidences of sexual harassment and assault in some cases. And parents of boys look around and say, I don't want my son to become that. We hear about these instances of, Mass violence and school shootings. And we look at our adorable, innocent looking little boys, at least when they're sleeping, and we want to nurture that and hold on to that. So let's start easy. What are some of the things that parents are doing right by their boys? And then let's talk about some of the things that we've gotten wrong and we can do better at.
2: Well, I I do think that we are all mothers, fathers. Children, we are wired to connect. That's the nature of our human brain, our human mind, our human being. And lots of parents, every parent I meet, I think, has that instinctual drive to provide a holding environment, a a safe harbor for their child, for their son. Unfortunately, what happens is that there's this myth, uh, these stereotypes that prey on parents, teachers, coaches, and and frankly cause us to forget that boys are indeed relational. And we we all harbor the myth, for example, that boys are the lone ranger in Mm -hmm. training and that if we keep them close, we're likely to undermine their achievement of masculine strengths. I was on a call to a radio station in Dallas recently and a man phoned in and voiced essentially the fear in a really, really straightforward way. He said, I'm worried that we are turning our boys into sissies, that we are softening them. And what boys need to be able to do is to be strong, to be tough, like those good men on that, that uh, uh, transit uh, system, you know, to be courageous, to be strong. And what I said to him, and what I say in the book, is that uh, strength, resilience, grit, doesn't come from a boy who's pushed out of the nest involuntarily too early, who has a ruptured attachment, who loses his relational anchor and is adrift. Strength, resilience, grit, courage, they come from a, a... a boy who's held well-held we psychologists say Who's who's known and loved And has confidence that there's someone got his back.
3: Yeah, that they have that security.
2: Yep. Yep. That's right You know what we know about attachment theory janet is that it's one of the strongest predictors Of behavior, you know, depending on the kind of separation uh, uh, attachment that i've experienced I'm likely to reproduce that with my own children. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the better we parents can offer a secure holding environment for our sons, we can hold them close, we can keep them close to us, the more likely it is that they're going to be able to be themselves, to resist the, the peer cultural norms that are trying to tear them away, seduce them into hyper masculine you know, uh, values of all kinds
3: so i have a question for you this this comes up often in my parent my work with parents and it's you know again we're at this generational crossroads i believe we're you know raising our boys with more of this connection and yet we're asking fathers to be this relational person with their kids and they haven't had that as a role model and they haven't learned how to do that, what would you say to those fathers and to the, the women around the yeah, you know, yeah. dads who are supporting them?
2: Yeah, I have a message for both mothers and fathers that really is about the ways that, that their lives have been influenced by gender norms, gender conditioning. For mothers, what I say is that there's a mama's boy myth that will prey on you that will cause you to question and doubt Mm. uh, whether you really have what it takes to raise a boy to be a good man and it's going to cause you consciously or unconsciously to move away from your son to to let him go Uh, i have mothers who even believe that they need to quote unquote build a bridge to their to the father so that they, they, they get out of their son's way so he can join the fraternity of manhood.
1: Um, and I've heard from, from mothers who are advised by people.
2: That's right, that's right. To
1: spend less time with their son, to push them into the company yeah. of men.
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's this idea, this myth, that there are secrets to being a man, and only another man can introduce a boy you know, a lot of the mentoring, male mentoring, uh, uh, you know, ideology is in that direction. Um, and, and you know, frankly, I think it's wonderful for boys to be around men. Uh, you know, my sons have really powerful uh, relationships with me, and they're very different relationships than their relationship with their mother. You know, there's, there are particular things that a boy can learn from rubbing shoulders with his father, watching his father shave. Seeing how his father relates to his mother, I mean, there's all kinds of really important models that that a boy can absorb. But if the fathers believe that their job is to teach their boys about masculinity, they're likely to be uh, uh, giving short shrift to the much more important um, nurturing of connection. I mean, you know, my sons and I, we did a lot of of special time playing sports, kicking the soccer ball, throwing the lacrosse ball, rough passing, all kinds of ways that we could relate to each other that were in my wheelhouse. Yeah. But the point really was we were spending time together. I wasn't trying to teach them anything. I was simply trying to enjoy them and be close to them. Um, what I say to mothers is, is don't buy the myth. Hold your sons close. If you want your sons to hold on to themselves, You have to hold on to them yourself. And what I say to fathers is, you know, don't believe that the most important thing you do with your son Mm -hmm. is provide him some secrets or some exhortation to be a certain kind of way.
1: That is powerful. You mentioned special time just now, and it's a topic that comes up in your book. For our listeners, describe what you mean by special time and why this is so important and beneficial for boys and, frankly, for their families.
2: Yeah, so I, I describe three strategies for enhancing connection, um, whether it's uh, uh, teachers and their stu- male students or uh, parents with their sons or coaches with their athletes. It, it's not that what I'm recommending, these three strategies are, are uh Only relevant to boys lives. I believe because they foster connection. They're relevant for human lives Mm -hmm. Um, But they're particularly important for boys for two reasons The first is that uh, there's this myth that boys are better uh, uh, Alone that they really are the lone ranger. They don't need connection. They're non-relational Um, I did this global research study on the teacher-student relationship uh, uh, in in boys' education. And we discovered, lo and behold, that boys are relational learners, that absent a relationship, a connection with a teacher, a boy is less likely to engage in the skill or the lesson. Mm -hmm. That's 1st base. Now what was so striking to me about that was that nobody none of the adults not the two researchers who had between us had 50 years in mm-hmm. education Not that not the not the thousand teachers that were teaching these boys grades 6 through 12 No one named boys as relational learners. It took the boys to tell us that Wow, wow. My point I think really is that we tend to forget what we know and uh, that's particular to these myths and stereotypes that surround the project of being with a boy. So the fostering of connection is, is a is special relevance to boys. And, and the second reason I think these strategies are so important is boys aren't necessarily going to make this easy.
1: This
3: episode is sponsored by By Heart.
1: Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, Use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart baby formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk and BiHart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, Less spit-up and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only US-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Biheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code onboys at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T.com three-month supply of Easy Melts Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try.easymeltz.com t-r-y, forward slash onboys. i can vouch for that one
2: janet (laughs) there you go jen (laughs) boys boys are more likely to resist to reject to Mm -hmm. complain to be mean to be avoidant to be withdrawn they're less willing to please in general Mm -hmm.
1: is is that i don't want to interrupt you um do you think that's partly because they're coming up in this culture too
2: absolutely they've gotten
1: these messages that it's not cool to be close
2: So the corollary of the mama's boy myth is the boy who feels that his mom is actually trying to undermine him. She's trying to hold on to him and she's trying to turn him into a mama's boy and he's likely get teased by his peers. Mm -hmm. Judy Chu in her study uh, uh, that she writes about in her wonderful book, When Boys Become Boys, talks about uh, the journey from age four to age six and how many of the boys began to hide the fact that they still loved to climb in their mother's laps. Mm -hmm. They kept that secret
1: hmm
2: So yeah boys absorb this message and they enact it when they're out in public trying to play this this part you know, and uh, so you know between parents who feel rejected and scared who believe the mask and boys who also believe it the the, the more typical outcome is that boys get let go and they lose their relational anchors Mm-hmm. So I recommend these three strategies. The first strategy is what I call listening or deep listening. The second strategy is the one you mentioned, special time. And the third one is a model for discipline called listen, limit, listen. Listening, by listening, what I mean, it, it's sort of, Janet, what you were saying earlier. You know, we need to communicate to our sons that we want to know them. hmm We want to know not just, you know, what they do, their grades or their sports achievements or how well they clean their rooms or, you know, how polite they are. We want to know what's in their hearts and minds. And the only way we're going to do that is if we're able to still our own uh, preoccupations and be present for our sons, just simply to listen to them. Uh, and, and that's especially important in the realm of emotional development. What we know about emotional development is it's a function of practice and that <laughs> boys get much less practice than girls. And the reason boys get less practice than girls is that we parents typically don't believe that boys are emotionally expressive. Uh, what the research shows, however, is that boys and girls are, have, have equal experience of emotions where things diverge is in the expression of emotions. Yes. Boys, boys keep it in because they're 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 responding to cultural cues that they they damn well better.
1: They're watching um, all of us all the time for is it okay? Is this accepted? Yeah.
2: And and in particular, vulnerable feelings like fear or disappointment or sadness. Any emotion other than anger actually gets 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 censored for boys. So what we have to do is we have to create a space where we can be delighted with our sons, not preoccupied, not urgent, not, not, not prying, not controlling, not dominating, but simply there and trust that, that boys will test the reality of that, but there's a force within them that is our ally in this project that they will open up once they discover that it's safe. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, this is the kind of thing that always seems so much easier to me when I'm reading a book (laughs) or having a nice calm conversation with you and Janet. Yeah, yeah. It all becomes much more difficult when my actual children show up at home, (laughs) you know, and, and you're caught in the busyness, you're torn between work and home. And right now, if you came in my house, it would be utterly apparent to you that my kids went on a trip with their dad last week because they came home and just threw everything everywhere.
2: Yeah.
1: And so it's driving me crazy and I could very easily turn all my interactions with them into nagging them about the stuff that's on the floor. But somehow we as parents need to give ourselves permission sometimes, I think, to let that go and sit there and be available to whatever your boy has to say, for instance, when he comes home after baseball practice, instead of jumping right to, hey, you left your underwear laying on the floor again. Yeah, yeah. That's your homework. And and I think it's
3: good for all of us to recognize getting to those quiet places requires us to be less busy and requires us as the adults to you know turn off the radio when you're in the car and be okay with silence i think we're so used to just having constant commotion and noise around us but that in that silence that may be an invitation to speak or you know again and Jen and i have talked about this you know it might be that you're sitting side by side and the you know tv's on or whatever and there's little snippets Of conversation but that if we as the adults can be more attuned to those little tiny moments that's when you know that's when the magic can happen
2: (laughs) well there's a couple things i want to say you use the word attuned and and that's a really important word or an important concept because before a boy is going to go forward with spilling his guts he needs to feel you Mm-hmm. and feel that you are present, and that you are available emotionally to hear what he has to say. What What happens to many of us, uh, Jennifer, going back to what you were saying about the, the mess on the floor, <laughs> is that we don't have uh, control of our attention. Our attention is dominated by whatever is presently irking us or making us feel tense. So in order for the boy to get the opportunity to practice coding feelings with language and communicating them to someone, i.e. his parents, we, the parent, have to practice exercising control over our attention, or our attention is going to be in a default mode of just bouncing from stimulus to stimulus to stimulus. Mm -hmm. So it's a muscle. And what I recommend to parents is that they simply be really kind to themselves and, and start, start reasonable and small. Say, for five minutes when I pick my son up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear my mind and simply look at him, locate the place in my heart where I'm delighted in him, and I'm just going to be present. And I'm not going to fill in the space. I'm not going to pry. I'm just going to look at him and let him sense that I'm available. And extend that five minutes to 10 minutes to 15 to half an hour. But, you know, build up that muscle, gain control over your mind and your attention.
1: Your word delight struck me there. Um, Another mom shared in my Facebook group today, a lot of us are parenting tweens and teens. And as you point out, they're not always pleasant people to be around. (laughs) And her point was, you know, Sometimes when we look at our boys, it's what we are feeling is not necessarily delight. But we as the parents need to recenter ourselves and take control because what if they're looking at us and they're not sensing delight and that's what they are responding to. And her point was to look at it from the son's point of view, from the boy's point of view. And it underscores the importance of this inner work that we do as parents, the things that our kids can't see, won't see, and may not even realize for another 40 or 50 years.
2: I was giving a talk to a group of parents, and and, uh, uh, we were talking about the Me Too concerns. Uh, It was toward the end of the talk, and one mother raised her hand and said, let's be real. What we're all here primarily concerned about is that our sons not become assholes. And yeah. everybody everybody cracked up.
1: I have a blog post about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and, you know, the truth is that our boys pick that fear up for sure. And, yeah. and we call it uh, the looking glass model of self-concept development. But basically, we are who we think others see us as.
3: Yes. And this has been so proven in education, so many studies around that. You know, if a teacher thinks that you are going to be a failing student, guess what? You're going to be a failing student.
2: Right. The Rosenthal effect.
3: Yes. All of this, I, I just want to interject, all of that gets worse for boys of color and the messaging around what they receive from the world. Um, so again back to your point and I loved your word of the safe harbor we have to create and it may be that a teacher or a coach becomes that safe harbor if that boy doesn't have a home that can be a safe harbor but that we as adults can recognize yeah that kid needs needs something and what can I as his teacher provide not that we're going to be the saviors or the fixers but' Bringing in just that place where, yeah, you know, come and hang out after school while I'm grading papers or whatever. That he has that place to come.
2: That's a um, <clears throat> that was one of the most stirring uh, findings in our research about the uh, student teacher relationship, Janet. We actually heard stories of relationships that were truly transformative, that lifted boys up. And help them see themselves in altogether different ways. I actually say that these relationships, when they go well, are transformative on three different levels. They're transformative on a practical level. You gain the skills, you gain the knowledge, you gain the learning, that you're able to pass the test and accomplish your goals. They're also psychologically transformative. I see myself differently. I didn't know I was a poet. I didn't know that I could run that fast on the track team. Mm-hmm. and and most importantly i think they're transformative existentially i discover i'm not alone that there's somebody i can count on somebody's going to be there for me and yeah. that changes that changes what we call mental models mm-hmm. so if a boy has had a ruptured attachment if he's been terribly abandoned or disappointed at home and he simply doesn't trust anyone he's come to believe that people can't be depended on It's possible for a present relationship with a teacher or a coach to change that and for the boy to learn that indeed this world is different than I thought it was. And his whole life trajectory changes at that point.
1: I love all of the hope that is in your book. (laughs) For one, and and I picked this up right away, Um, I'm divorced. And so I was, you know, raising my boys. Their dad was still involved, but divorced mom um, for a number of years and you are one of the very few voices saying, Hey moms, you can do this job. I appreciate that. And that, that is a message of hope. That's crucial. And what you just said now, like boys who have had tough starts, there's still hope. There is a lot of hope. There are no boys who are beyond hope. We can make this better for everybody.
2: That was our finding in the research study and and it was it was not something I think we expected to learn so clearly I'm now in the in the Uncomfortable position of going around to schools and telling teachers. Basically you can't give up on any boy any (laughs) boy, Because the research shows that every boy can be reached by someone with the right strategies And when that boy is reached he can be transformed so it's the right strategy. It's the right approach that makes the difference. And, you know, that's the, that's the trick here. And, and what I say in the book is it really does begin with listening, with carving out blocks of time and deciding that we're going to follow the boy's lead. We're not going to dominate him and require him to fit to our comfort zones. We're not going to teach him something. We're going to actually allow him to teach us about himself. And what boys often will do at the beginning of that special time project is they'll test it. Mm -hmm. Mom, Are you really able to put, put aside your concerns? Are you sure you're not gonna wind up just lecturing me or complaining about me or tuning me out or going to your phone? And you know, once the boy establishes that indeed mom is going to be with me, because she really enjoys being with me as I am. There's no need to modify me in some way or fix me in some way. She just likes to be with me. I'm going to feel safer and I'm going to open up and use that that powerful time to reveal myself to her. I'm gonna come away feeling better known and better understood.
1: Obviously, you know a lot about boys on a lot of different levels from a lot of angles. Um, your background in psychology, your profession, you grew up as a boy. And yet, this is all difficult to put into personal practice. So I'm willing to bet that things didn't always go smoothly when you were parenting your own sons. And now you have now you have grandsons. Um, How has the hands on experience of living with boys further enhanced your understanding and challenged you, frankly,
2: yeah, I could go into long detail <laughs> about that <laughs> for sure. But what I would what I would say maybe in a in a short way is this. What boys don't need is a perfect parent.
1: Thank God. Yeah.
2: You know, they don't need they don't need perfection and, and, and every relationship of every kind cycles routinely through periods of connection, disconnection, reconnection. That's true of my relationship with my sons, my grandson, my wife, clients at my, in my office. Yeah. What's important isn't maintaining a steady, perfect connection because that's just unrealistic, and you know, not not going to happen. What's important is for the adult, whether it's the teacher or the parent, to recognize that their job is also to be the relationship manager. And if the relationship has gotten disconnected or weakened in some way, if it's broken down in some way, it's the parent or the adult's job to fix it. Our keeping coming back is the thing that communicates to the boy that indeed we're in it, we're with them. Yeah. They, derive, they derive more uh, uh, meaning from the fact that they can see it's hard for you that you are distracted. They know that you're stressed. You're a single mom and you've got way too much to do and too little help, but that you keep carving out time to be with them, uh, that they're that important to you. That they're that much of a priority to you. Boy, is that going to make a difference. Amen. Yes.
1: <laughs> Amen. There's that hope again. And there's yeah. me still at ground zero, just hoping this all comes true in the end.
2: I I can promise you it comes true. I can promise that. I tell you, it's just, it's just, there is this fundamental reality to who we are as human beings. We are relational. We're wired to connect. And when we don't find the connection we need, we do not flourish. But when we do, we're actually able to be the good, empathic, virtuous men that we're wired to be.
3: And this is a good place to interject because I don't want to leave that story of the Max train yeah. without speaking to what this young man said as he, I'll, I'll just say, as he lay dying at the train that day. He said, and this is, this is, I've seen it in quilts. I've seen it on graffiti. He said, tell everyone on the train that I love them. Tell everyone on this train that I love them. He could, in that moment of dying, his message was love and hope.
2: Yeah, and and, and you know, there's different ways to, to respond to that, of course, but how I think about it is he knew that's who he was. Yes. And that's what's so important. He knew that's who he was. That's what he had to give to the world. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, what uh, what healthy masculinity looks and sounds like.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can I read the poem that the poet wrote?
2: Yeah, that'd be after great.
3: he. Oh my gosh! So the third man was a 20, 21 year old poet, and he had emergency surgery. He had a um, stab wound that barely missed his jugular. And as he was released from the hospital, he offered this poem that you included in your book that he had composed. And he said, I am alive. I spat in the eye of hate and lived. This this is what we must do for one another. We must live for one another. And we will include his name and we'll include all that in the show notes.
2: Yeah, that's great. You know, Janet, the the thing I would say maybe on closing here is that, um, you know, counterposed to this notion of toxic masculinity are stories like that. And there are so many more stories like that than negative stories. Mm -hmm. But, you know, positive masculinity is is everywhere in our lives. And it moves us to tears when we see it because...
1: Janet and I are both wiping our yeah, eyes over here. Yeah, you.
2: yeah, you know, because it is so powerful, mm-hmm. so much goodness. Um, yes. We depend upon it, and I just think that that you know, in terms of answering the question, what goes wrong, it's it's developmental science one oh one. If we violate boys' basic natures, bad outcomes will ensue. If we meet their most basic needs they're likely to wind up connected to their hearts, connected to their virtue and their goodness.
1: I think that's a perfect ending right there, oh. Janet.
2: <laughs>
1: wow. Oh, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely include, you know, link to your book in the show notes um, and your website. I know that you've been going around and doing speaking. Is that up on your website as well?
2: The calendar of the events? Yeah, yes. no, no, I, I haven't put it up there, but um it's fine for people to reach out to me through the website.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Wow. And, uh, it's great talking with you both. And oh my and I, gosh. I'm so glad to actually connect with someone from Portland that that shares that resonance that I had with that story. Yeah. Thank you, Janet.
3: Yeah. There's a whole lot of people in Portland that yeah,
2: I'm really glad to that know resonates that
3: resonates
2: yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. A lot. It certainly resonated to many of us across the country. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I'm, I actually went and took pictures yesterday yeah. and we'll include those in the show notes. Also. Wow. We will certainly be spreading the word about your book. It is it is beautiful.
2: And thank a, you so and, much, and, both of you. Great I'm so glad you. that
1: your voice has come on the national scene because we needed it.
2: Well, thank you. It's great yes. talking with both of you.
1: Okay. Thank you so Stay much. Here. Thanks for being here. Bye. Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.
2: You know how to book flights and
0: hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive.